Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Beatrice Luna, who is Professor of Psychiatry and Pediatrics and Professor of Psychology at the University of Pittsburgh. She's a founder and director of the Laboratory for Neurocognitive Development, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Developmental Cognitive Neuroscience, and the founder and president of the Flux Society for Developmental Cognitive Neuroscience. Welcome, Bea. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So, so I want to start with your uh, review article from 2015 uh, to set the context for our conversation, an integrative model of the maturation of cognitive control in which you say the brain systems undergo unique and specific dynamic changes at the cellular circuit and systems level that underlie the transition to adult level cognitive control. You say the integrate literature from the uh, different levels of analysis to propose a novel model of the brain basis of the development of cognitive control. So um, before we get into the details of this, Bia, so so what exactly do you mean by cognitive control? Oh, that's right. So um, as humans, but also animals, uh, our behavior is either determined, you know, as a reaction to stimuli, or it is actually planned and goal-driven. And yeah. um, that is, and it engages cognitive control so that we're not distracted and that we continue with our goal-driven plan and it uses working memory, it uses inhibitory control, flexibility, attention, et cetera. Okay. And so, so this, is a, this is a very important aspect of the brain, isn't it? Um, you know, it, it's mind-boggling to, to really think about sort of the development of the brain. Uh, it's the most powerful uh, one. Most people think it's a quantum computer, but the most powerful machine that we know but it has to grow, right? It has to grow from something very simple to something extremely complex. And 
nature seems to have figured out how to do it. No, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and it's all very intentional and occurring. The slow development is adaptive. Yeah. Humans. Yeah, and so, so, so if you know, take um, so if you kind of um, look back at animal brains and how we evolved, do we see a lot of similarities there? Well, what characterizes the human brain is the fact that the prefrontal cortex um, yeah. is proportional to, to the rest of the brain has a greater proportion than other mammals. And, you know, the prefrontal cortex is a primary area for uh, cognitive control, not because it is, in fact, the, the area that is doing the actual mechanics of cognitive control, but because it coordinates a widely distributed circuitry that allows for the flexible and, and reliable engagement of cognitive control. Yeah, so so this this sort of distributed decision making and the circuitry, so that the more complex the brain is, in in some sense, it's um, it it has a higher likelihood of uh, I don't know what the right term is going haywire. Well, it's it's interesting that across mental illnesses, yeah. Um, one feature that always arises is limitations in cognitive control. Not that it characterizes the disorder, but in all of these tests of working memory, inhibitory control, attention, et cetera, um, people with schizophrenia, autism, uh, mood disorders, depression, they all show a decrease in their cognitive controllability which is really reflecting that cognitive control is engaging such a dynamic distributed circuitry that it is a way to probe the integrity of yeah. brain circuitry, which would be disrupted in mental illness. Yeah, so, so, so do you think of cognitive control as sort of an outcome or, or, or sort of the, the mechanistic process that goes on? Mm, that's interesting. I, I guess a little bit of both. Yeah. There are, you know, both aspects of it, you know, speak to cognitive control. Yeah. So, um, so, so, you know, talk a little bit about, so, so we have this issue as, as humans develop from childhood to adulthood, we go through a period of, um, <laughs> chaos, so to speak. I don't know what the, how, to, how to describe it. All of us have done that. Uh, during which time the brain is doing a lot of different things, right? It's a, it's a very complex process uh, that we all go through, but um, it has some, some downsides, so to speak. Well, the, the, the way that we've been looking at um, what we call neurocognitive development is it initially from birth through childhood, there is a process of accumulation. The brain is actually getting bigger. We are learning to walk, we're learning to talk, cognitive processes are coming online. But by adolescence, 
everything is already there. And then there is a shift to specialization in a heavy process of use it or lose it. Yeah. And and we we propose that this is a very important period of development adolescence when adult trajectories are going to be established. Yeah. So the, the adolescent brain um, is on a track to adulthood, but it's it seems like there are a lot of uncertainties, right, to reach that that sort of the mature brain. The, well, uh, is your question how do we determine maturity? No, I, I, I'm just wondering. So, so let me let me sort of backtrack a little bit. So, um, uh, if if I understand this correctly, uh, Bia, I, I I have no no understanding of the brain. Um, it seems like the during that phase of uh, the brain growing from the child's brain to the adult's brain. There are a lot of uncertainties, right, in, in the brain uh, structure, composition, progression. Is that what we find? Yeah, I mean, th th there are already predetermined mechanisms, yeah. right? So, for example, um, there is synaptogenesis, uh, an increase in the number of synaptic connections between neurons, right? And that occurs early, you know, from birth they increase and they increase until mid-childhood where now they start to decrease. And they continue to decrease, for example, in prefrontal cortex until you're 30 years of age. Um, and th 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 that's just a basic mechanism that is determined early on. However, you know, we are all born with a genetic neurobiological predisposition in a particular environment and that initial stage of development is very much about discovering the adaptive fit yeah. position to the environment. And, you know, the brain is just trying to fit the, you know, that piece together and it could turn out to be within normal range or it could end up being, you know, for example, a non normative range trajectory such as in mental illness. Yeah. So so I want to bring another paper of yours uh, from 2016 into this um, into this conversation. Uh, adolescent brain development implications for the juvenile criminal justice system, uh, in which you say recent US Supreme Court opinions regarding extended sentencing for juveniles have made reference to their immaturity on the basis of what what any parent knows, and to evidence from psychology and brain science indicating differences in brain processes underlying control of behavior, making juveniles more vulnerable to impulsivity and risk-taking. Now, most parents uh, know uh, or seen uh, this process uh, of, um, of kids growing up and um, so, 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 so what are the, this is from 2016. I know there were a couple of Supreme Court cases around this uh, of crime and other things. So what's the latest thinking around this uh, from a scientific perspective there? So th th there are a few points that need to be clarified. When we think of adolescence, um, we know it is a time of peak sensation seeking. 
And this is something that is seen across species and across cultures. It's normative. But the sensation seeking can lead to risk-taking behavior, including delinquency. And But this is all within the realms of what the brain is capable of doing. And we, we very much believe that um, this peak in sensation seeking is necessary for the brain to gain the experiences, new independent experiences in order to sculpt itself to its most optimal you know, um, model that it can. Yes. So when it comes to the juvenile justice system, and note that these were cases that had to do with the length of punishment. So life without parole. Yeah. And so some issues were evident. I had to think about this a lot because we have to be very careful about the limited amount that we can inform ethical questions such as juvenile justice. Mm. And there were some things that um, we thought that we could actually inform. And um, the way that we that we look at adolescence is the following. So uh, across the field, it is understood that adolescence is a time where motivational, emotion and reward processing are predominating over cognitive executive processes. Mm-hmm. Now, different models suggest, and you see it very much in the media, that um, adolescence is a time when prefrontal cortex is not quite online, that is not what we're finding. We do find that there's elevation, hyper, you know, responsivity to motivational situations. But what we find is that actually adolescence is a time when you have access to adult level executive function. It is not stable. It is a new ability that, that has come to the fore that needs to be strengthened and stabilized. But, but what occurs then is that you have this very articulate new system that is being pushed or driven by this, you know, increase in excitability for motivational cues. And in fact, our model is called the driven dual systems model. So when it comes to the juvenile justice, we think that we can inform number one, culpability. So to make it really short, um, that the crime was committed, quote, under adolescence, right? So meaning that it was committed at a time when the brain is particularly driven by motivation, um, driving this really amazing capacity to plan. Because, you know, what, what, when you look at these crimes, they're very well planned. If you think of Columbine, that, that was... You cannot say there was not executive, you know, adult level executive function involved yeah. in that planning, but it was done with heightened motivation. And peers also plays a very big role. In fact, the majority of juvenile uh, crime is committed in the presence of peers. So that's one aspect of juvenile justice that is informed. The other aspect that is very crucial, and I've I find myself repeating this to judges. I, I actually I went to to um, also to the U.S. Supreme Court in Uruguay, where they were trying to uh, change the age of culpability, increase it, it to decrease it to 16 years of age. That did not happen, um, you know. But I had to address them as well. 
Um, and, you know, one of the big points is that adolescence is a very short period of development, right? Just a few years. Yeah. And know who that individual is going to be. We do not know if that act was an act of adolescence or if that was an act that really characterizes that individual. In fact, NPR intervie interviewed me regarding the Kavanaugh um, yeah. experience. And, and all that I could say with that is, yes, you know, in adolescence, you might be, you might do things that were part of adolescence. How do we know that that was only an adolescent action and not who you are as an adult? And my opinion is that if you are able to recognize retrospectively that what you did back then, you know, to acknowledge it and to realize that it was wrong, then it gives you some evidence that you are not the that sort of an individual. And then the third point that is applicable to the juvenile justice is that because of the significant plasticity that is occurring during the adolescent period, yeah. that their adolescence may be more amenable to rehabilitation than adults. So those three points speak particularly to the length of sentencing. So, so when you're talking about life without parole, when someone committed a crime at 14, it seems that we don't really know that individual at 25 or 30 might be a completely different individual. And that is often seen, which is the case. Then again, there are some that are not, that are actual psychopaths and will continue to, to behave in that manner. Yeah. This is, this is so interesting, Bea, you know, um, without knowing a lot about it. So uh, when we think about artificial intelligence, for example, we have, deep learning neural networks, we have to train them. And training requires um, labeled cases, uh, the proxy for humans um, really are, you know, experiences. And so, uh, so, so, so I want to get your perspective on evolution in just a minute. It seems to me that nature has came up with a design that has a lot of flexibility in a short period of time, let's say five years, uh, during which uh, the individual has, individual is collecting labeled cases in artificial intelligence uh, jargon uh, to actually learn more and more so that the, the brain can mature into something that's much more usable. Um, so, if, if that's the case, um, and if it is really kind of systematically predictable, you know, when an, when a human being would have this phase, let's say four or five years, can we actually intervene? In uh, I, I'm I'm thinking therapeutic intervention here. Is there a therapeutic intervention to adolescence? Well, I, I I think that that is what we want to know, and yeah. um, theoretically. Yes, because what's occurring, and we actually have a paper on critical period plasticity, and uh, critical period plasticity um, comes about when you've reached a level in a part of the brain where information is coming in that has such high signal that there has to be reorganization of the cytoarchitecture 
to be able to change it, right? To, to be able to adapt and be able to process that information. So for example, in the visual system, you're born, you open your eyes, all this visual stimuli comes in, it increases excitation compared to inhibitory processes. And then the cytoarchitecture of the visual cortex is rearranged so that now it can more effectively um, uh, process that information. Now, what we have found in the literature is um, evidence that this might be occurring in prefrontal cortex and perhaps in other association cortices where by the time that you reach adolescence, the fidelity of the sensory systems which have now matured are bringing such high signal information uh, from many different regions that these association cortices have to actually reorganize at that time. So if you're talking about the effectiveness of intervention, theoretically, yes, th this would be a good time. And then what happens is that from adolescence to adulthood, you see what we call closing mechanisms of critical period. Not that it closes completely. We know the plasticity is available throughout the lifespan, but it is reduced because you want stability in the system. So you have things like myelination, which is the insulating of the white matter tracts in the brain that yes, they speed up neural information processing, but they also you know, establish that that circuitry is going to be cemented and established. And that is done in a use it or lose it sort of fashion. The, the same with something called perineuronal nets, which is an actual encasing of the neuron saying, okay, no more changes in this neuron. This is how it's going to stay from now on. Yeah, I mean, it, it's such a fascinating thing. So from an evolutionary perspective, um, it appears that the individual, the human, is quite vulnerable during that time. What do you think is sort of the evolutionary basis for this, uh, Bia? You know, um, you know, the the, the 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 it's an objective function with two different requirements. You need to collect labor cases, as we say in artificial intelligence. You have to collect experiences. But you you have to figure out how to not get killed <laughs> while collecting right. while experiences. So, so so how did we get here from an evolutionary perspective? Do we know? Well, you know, the, the, there are a couple of thoughts when it comes to looking at it in that manner. Like I said before, it, it is adaptive. I mean, I often find myself in my talk saying adolescence is not an illness. It's a <laughs> perfect time of development when yes, there is a heightened risk. And in, in, in fact, mortality increases during that time. So you could say there is some sort of failure in that sense, but yes, that you are driven to new experiences because up to that point, you have been guided by the protection of your parents and your teachers, et cetera. But then when you reach adolescence, you're fully grown, you have this executive function and now the brain says, go and get your given <laughs> yeah. experiences, right? Yeah. So yeah. An, another aspect of evolution that has come up um, is that in Western societies, there is evidence that adolescence is persisting into 25 years of age approximately, right? Mm -hmm. It's not what we had thought about before. In fact, we, we I, I was part of a report by the, uh, Institutes of Medicine and National Academy of Sciences 
really bringing this to the fore, hey, uh, hello, from 18 to 25, we're not taking care of this period, and adulthood hasn't really been reached at that point. The evolutionary aspect of it is that, you know, of course, it was controversial, there was media, um, and, and people are saying, oh, these are responsible kids, we just let them be teenagers forever. But the, the truth is, is the longer you have to specialize, yeah. the better that specialization is going to occur. So what do you see at the end? You see people getting married later, um, you know, committing to a professional trajectory later, but they're actually, you know, they have a longer time to choose what they really are going to want to be. And that really, what really struck me is that once I was giving a talk at UNICEF and talking to somebody who, you know, not a neuroscientist, um, was saying, oh, wow, that's so interesting, you know, your talk, et cetera. Um, and I forget what country they were reporting on, but, but they were telling me, you know, in the country that I work in, girls as young as 10 or 11 yeah. married and already starting to form a family. And it occurred mm -hmm. to me, adolescence is a luxury. It's a luxury mm -hmm. that we have. So the longer that we have, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Yes, one can complain. I mean, I often think this protracted adolescence is getting a PhD, going to med school, you know <laughs> what I mean? I often say that, you know what characterizes adulthood? When you're paying for your own iPhone uh, bill. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, so that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I want to put on one, uh, one direction. It's, it's not in the paper, but I want to get your perspective on this. So is there some sort, sort of societal evolution happening? Um, so, so, so what I mean is that um, if, if we find a vulnerability for an individual, in that time period, then if you have a society that recognizes it uh, and, 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 and controls it in some way, controlling is not the right term, but uh, optimizes it, let's say, then um, you, know, you could get to some point. So, so again, rewinding time, there appears to be what was there a sort of a selection advantage to this this idea i mean you know those who are really sort of brain dead uh, between 16 and 22 would have gotten killed by animals right i mean why, right. why do we have this feature well i mean you know there are rodent studies that show that those adolescent pups that take the highest risk, which means they venture farther from the nest in the protection of, uh, of their litter, if they don't get killed, are the ones that are gonna have the best survival rate. That's true, yeah. So, so there is an aspect to, you know, to advantages. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that, that makes sense. So, so in some sense, again, from a societal perspective, you wanted a, a percentage of the population to be like this, so they can push the envelope, they can they can take risks, and maybe a percentage of them will, will survive, but those who survive would actually be survived into a better outcome for society in some ways. Well, I mean, I do remember giving a talk once uh, where somebody came up to me and said, 
is there something wrong with me? When I was a teenager, I, I never did anything crazy. And, and I had to really think about it and say, look, it's not really about being an adolescence and doing sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's really about new experiences. So it can be, you know, right, you know, all of a sudden you like sci-fi or you're become a history buff. That's within the context of where you had been developing up to that point. That's also sensation seeking. It's also called information seeking. So yeah. it's not just about risking your survival. Yeah, I like that sensation seeking and information seeking. Um, so, so again, going back to sort of a societal question, do you see Bia sort of a is there a better design for society where you understand this and you necessarily plan for it so that you can get a better outcome for society in some way? Uh, yes, um, there are aspects that are informative. Um, I, for example, I've, I've, I've spoken at um, you know one of the big adolescent medicine societies and I, I did give feedback from clinicians saying, wow, I never thought of this potential that adolescents might have access to executive function. And I had been talking down to them. So I'll give you an example, uh, uh, yeah. an adolescent with diabetes. Yeah. So th this clinician, you know, who reached out to me afterwards saying my, my our approach has been you know get the family involved and not give a lot of responsibility to the adolescent but now that you've told me that i can now i can sit down alone this is important so there aren't distractions so they can the adolescent can access their executive systems um also thinking of the of the fact that reward you know is also heightened and it can be used um you know, to help as well. And they said that now it's more effective for them because now the adolescent is taking care of themselves hmm. and that leads to better health outcomes. So th there are many ways that one could think about it, the juvenile justice system, the educational system, the parental system. And, you know, I, I have gotten lots of feedback in that sense of like, wow, I never, you know, I never saw it that way. And maybe I will behave differently towards an adolescence to help them take advantage of that great period. Yeah, so, so this is not in the paper, but I want to get your um, insight into this. So it seems to me Bia, that there, there's some sort of societal overlay on this. You know, I grew up in South India and adolescent behavior in South India would be very different from New York today. Um, and so, so, so can we abstract an individual's behavior away from sort of the environment or is much more complex than that? No, yeah, I, 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 I don't think that we're at the level where we can really speak about the individual, certainly not by looking at their brain. Um, but even, you know, if you can recall back, I'll ask you, <laughs> um, like I said before, would you agree that even if society was restrictive of adolescent risk-taking, yeah. that was still sensation-seeking, information-seeking, novelty-seeking during that period within the confines of that society? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful 
question and possibly an experiment that um, if it's a universal feature, you would find people in that that age group. Um, obviously, you know there are some constraints on them from a societal perspective, but they I would imagine they would optimize within those constraints. Uh, that that's my gut feel. Yeah. And so, so you, we should find some sort of a universal behavior features, right, across the world, regardless of, regardless of culture. Yeah, and and th- that's that's so you know, like I said, across species, it is very evident that there is sensation seeking peaking during the pubertal period. And but but by the way, I say puberty because there are hormones involved. And yeah. if you think of adolescence, I mean it does have a purpose, which is reproduction. So, you know, hormones come in and they, you know, help help the sexual, you know, organisms or organs to mature so that there can be reproduction involved as well. So, you know, there are some things that are gonna be evident no matter where you go. Yeah, so, so I saw in one of your papers that, you know, and I think most people have um, noticed this that uh, girls mature not faster than boys, right? That is correct, yes. And uh, it's a systemic effect, as you say, um, puberty, um, hormones. So so I think, do we have sufficient understanding how the whole mechanism happens there? You, you mean sex differences? Yeah. Yeah, you know, so one recurrent finding is that there are aspects of brain development that also um, are maturing earlier in, in females and males, particularly the maturation of the white matter. Um, and um, we wrote a paper time ago thinking about these sex differences. And um, what we looked at is, uh, for example, stress reactivity. Um, and, 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 and this was led by Sarah Ordes, who was a grad student in my lab. And what she found is that across these stress psychology tests, which is, you know, they give you impossible math problems or they tell you how to, you know, give a speech to a, a big audience, and it really increases stress. And what they found was that um, males' blood pressure, and, and this is across many different studies in different laboratories, um, males' blood pressure increased dramatically. Yeah. Females were very chill. <laughs> but then after the, you know, these tests, they would ask um, males, so what did you think of the test? And they were like, oh, no, it was fine. Even though their blood pressure had been really high and females are like, I'm never doing this again. This is the most stressful thing ever. So we, yeah. we kind of put the pieces together and we proposed that this earlier maturation of um uh, of the female brain mm-hmm. might give them access to emotional processing and the ability to integrate it with a parasympathetic uh, yeah. system, and it might have an evolutionary, you know, um, um, reason. And in, in the fact that back in the days, you're in the cave with your newborns, and you have to form an attachment to stay in there and take care of them while the males have to be distant so they can go and kill the lion and, and, and whatever and bring dinner back. Right. So, you know, there are these different aspects to it. 
Yeah, so uh, I was stretching this a bit, Bia. So I wrote a book in 2009, it's called Flexibility, oh. in which I argue that uh, men should never be put into positions of managing complex systems, <laughs> like countries, multinationals, and so on. And what I argue is that uh, the, 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 the man's brain appears to be highly process-centric for evolutionary reasons and very efficient given an objective function. But when you have a complex system to manage, like you know, manage a country in the midst of a pandemic, as an example. Exactly. Um, you don't do too well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, for example, there are tasks looking at cognitive control. Yeah, have not have not really shown sex differences. Yeah. Okay. Um, but you know, hormonally, we're starting to really look at these more, and some different some sex emphasis are starting to emerge and and there are things that we know so for example depression is more predominant in females and it emerges in adolescence so a lot of these major psychiatric disorders are emerging during this transition of the adolescent period and and that, that, that's why i've been getting funding for a long time from the nih because they know something is occurring during this transition that you know uh, tells us about different mental illnesses, but why different sexes are, are more amenable to one than the other. Yeah, so again, from a societal perspective, though, um, you probably have the statistics on this. So when we look at um, suboptimum behavior, crime, other things, uh, there is a concentration there, right? Right, so it, yes, it is true that delinquency is peaking in adolescence to young adulthood, and then it decreases. And, but if you look at it, I mean, it's a small percentage. So yeah, yes, it is true that, you know, like I said before, the sensation seeking with this, which is great and comes in all flavors and so forth, can lead to risk-taking behavior. If, if what you're telling me is that because there is a small percentage that will reach delinquency, that we consider the whole developmental stage as an impairment, I would say no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. But uh, so, so, so you have another, you know, uh, a um, very extensive research around this, uh, some Supreme Court decisions um, around, um, you know, bad behavior of juveniles and, and whether we can actually take the stage of their brain development as sort of a defense against that. So, so what what is the status quo on that idea? Well, I, I think what's very important, and and I I say this when I give this lecture to like people in law school, is that th 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 this is not saying that the crime that occur that they're not guilty for the crime that they that has occurred, and you know. The, the cases that were up for the Supreme Court where some of them were very extreme crimes, you know, like cold-blooded yeah. murder, et cetera. So it, it's not saying, oh, forgive them because they were adolescents. It yeah. really, and, and, and the reason I, I accepted this was because it was not asking for that. It was asking for life without parole, the extent 
of, so what you could say is, yes, what they did was wrong. What is the correct punishment when we take into consideration that this is a still not determined um, human being? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if there has been any thinking around this, uh, Bia. I just ask you the question. If, if you believe that there's experimentation going on, there's risk-taking, there's sensation-seeking, do you think the parents could be held accountable? No. <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, part of being an adolescent is to be doing things independently yeah. from parents. Of course, you know, parents play a very important role. Um, I often find myself t telling parents, um, you, you will have an argument with your teenager and it will look like they're not listening to you. Don't yeah. give up. Keep talking because the brain is still processing. Yeah. And it'll it'll reach them. D just don't give up on them. Yeah, yeah. So so in a larger sense, uh, what you're arguing, B, if I understand it, is that society has to really internalize uh, there is a process going on in the human brain. Uh, and for a period of time, it appears highly vulnerable. And uh, in a very advanced society, I would imagine um, we could we could take care of it. Uh, but you know, increasingly, we are in an environment where you know we don't have those types of things anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's and and and, and I think that you've alluded to this. Um, the, 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 there is a line that one doesn't want to cross, which is you know controlling normative development. Yeah. Um, I guess at some point, if we can really understand psychopathy, yeah. then th th that could be of importance. Um, we are involved in, a, in an analysis where we're trying to understand brain and delinquency associations to see if there is some sort of, of for, you know, if we can inform that association in a way that could help us understand predisposition. But even then, you don't want to label a young individual and pretty much make them go in that trajectory. Yeah, so is there any data on cross-sectional differences across countries? Uh, have you seen anything? Uh, I, I'm just wondering, you know, between U.S., EU, uh, and maybe Scandinavia, are the developed countries do we do we know there's any variation um i am i haven't looked at it I, I i suspect it wouldn't be hard to look at you know when when in at what age crime is peaking and i'm sure it's going to be very similar that it is peaking around adolescence and young adulthood and things of that sort um i haven't done that analysis myself yeah that will be very interesting because if you believe there's a societal influence on child development, um, it should show up in the data, I would think. So there, there's, if there's a cultural factor on the problem, we should be able to tease that out from the data. Yeah, but, but, but what I'm proposing is that there is something that's independent oh. from culture and society. Yeah. Right. That that it's more neurobiological 
and adaptive in nature. The puberty hits and it is adaptive to have that sensation seeking that is occurring. Yeah, so so we can expect sort of the, the baseline to happen that way. But what I was wondering is, is there a sort of an overlay on top of that, whether it's family, you know, immediate family, neighborhood, culture, society, country, uh, whether it could have some mediating effect on that? Yeah, I mean, um, of course, there are important environmental factors like social economic status and, um, you know, the ability to have resources, which is, which increases stress. And not, not only is it affecting neurobiology in, during that time period, um, but, but also m motivating this ability to have risk-taking as well. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. and, and you can see that, you know, crime this with populations that have more uh, limited access to resources. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's a, it's a resource question too. We'll take, a, we'll take a quick break, Bia. When we come back, we'll talk about your recent paper on uh, the dopamine system. Okay. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we're back, we are, you know, we're talking about cognitive control, how the brain develops from childhood to adulthood. And uh, there is a phase of, uh, as most parents know, a period of vulnerability for kids growing up. And uh, it's a complex growing up process uh, the brain has to go through. And uh, we are getting increasingly more interesting data around this. Obviously, there are some implications for the juvenile criminal justice system that you have written about, Bia. I want to go to uh, one of your recent papers, Maturation of the Human Striatal Dopamine System, revealed by PET and Quantitative MRI. So you say in this, the development of the striatum dopamine, DA system, through human adolescence a time of increased sensation-seeking and vulnerability to the emergence of psycho psychopathology has been difficult to study due to the pediatric restrictions on direct in vivo assessment of DA. Um, so, so, so we have a lot of conjectures. Um, some of them have been already borne out by data, but we cannot really get very, very hard data on the longitudinal aspects of this, right? Is that the problem? Well, um, uh, what we're talking about there is that, um, so D DA refers to dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter that is, um, that underlies reward processing. And when, you know, as we talked in the beginning, um, this heightened sensation seeking is very much associated with the striatal 
dopaminergic system being that the striatum plays a key role in reward processing. And, you know, we and others have found evidence of, um, you know, greater reactivity in the striatal dopamine system using fMRI in the presence of rewards. Um, where, exactly, uh, um, where exactly BS is striatum in the brain? So, yeah, it's, it's in the limbic system, so it's in the middle of the brain. Yeah. So it's in the basal ganglia, which is the part of the brain that determines action, that, you know, determines movement, that it's involved in Parkinson's and so forth. But it's also involved in learning and in particular reward processing. And, and all that reward processing is, is, is when the individual gets a surprise reward for doing mm -hmm. something that then it's reinforced and they do it again and dopamine is released and it's called a prediction error and this is how we learn. But there, you know, so dopamine is very complex. It has many different aspects to it and the animal literature shows that these different aspects might be developing at different rates. You know, dopamine, yeah. for example, is increased when people do drugs and yeah. when you're super excited um, so it's, it, it's, it's become famous because of that. Okay. Um, so, so, so the question for us, I mean, there had always been an assumption that dopaminergic function must be increased during the adolescent period, because we know that behaviorally sensation seeking is increasing. We know from fMRI, the ventral striatum activity is increased during this time, but yeah. we, we didn't know. And it's very difficult because the way to look in vivo, right, in a live human being, how dopamine is processing is by using positron emission tomography, which requires the, you know, injection of a very small amount of, you know, radioactivity, which is really the equivalent of a transcontinental, but, you know, rightly so. It's still in a hospital setting, that's the issue, right? Yeah, and, and, and we, we, in this study, we did do PET, but only on 18 to 30 year olds. And we used a very um, special machine that's called the molecular MR machine. So this is an MRI yeah. machine, a 3T MRI machine that simultaneously also collects PET. So although we studied 12 to 30 year olds, we did MRI on all of them. And with the adults, we also did PET. And the reason that we did this was to really start to look at what is going on with dopamine when you're younger. So yeah. the, way, the way that we did this, and I have to give credit to Bart Larson, who was a grad student in my lab now, he's a postdoc at UPenn, brilliant. And he came up with this, with this idea that he saw in the literature that the, tish, the iron in the tissue of the brain, not the blood, in yeah. the tissue of the brain, um, has been studied in Parkinson's, restless leg syndrome, ADHD, a lot of conditions where dopamine is involved. Mm -hmm. He also found out that this tissue iron is very important for the production of dopamine and that it can be imaged non-invasively with MRI. Mm -hmm. And in fact, th there was a, a study that looked at learning um, based on the tissue iron in the brain. So, you know, the first um, paper that he wrote, he used machine learning to predict the age of the individual based on tissue iron in the striatum. And he was very effective in doing that. 
So what we did here was, well, is it really related to dopamine? So we did the, you know, we um, obtained tissue, quant quantitative measures of tissue iron in the brain. Yeah. And, you know, particularly in the striatum because th that's where tissue iron is concentrated. And we also obtained PED in, in, um, in adults. And what we found was the following. We found, not surprisingly, that tissue iron accumulates with age. That is known. In the striatum, it starts to stabilize around the adolescent period. Now, when we looked at PET, so now we're talking only about 18 to 30-year-olds. And remember, I said adolescence is prolonged for a long time. What we found was that... Um, Some of us remain to be in that state forever. Yeah, I know. That, that's what people say. It's, <laughs> yeah, it can be more complex than that, but absolutely. So uh, what we found is that our PET measure of dopamine availability yeah. was stable from 18 to 30, established. And that measure was very much associated with tissue iron. So yeah. that's great. So that's telling us two things. Dopamine availability may already be established by adolescence. And importantly, hey, we have a non-invasive measure of a very important aspect of dopamine, which is dopamine availability. We also did another PET scan in these adults um, looking at how many D2, D3 receptors were in the striatum. And what we found there, which is a really impactful finding, was that there is a decrease in the density of D2, D3 receptors. Now that's big because you know people usually think, oh, as you get older, you get more things. But in fact, this is more akin to the story I told you about synaptic pruning, but now at the receptor level. So when we take this together, what we propose is it, it during development, based on you know, your predisposition, your environment, et cetera, the brain is deciding how much dopamine you are going to have. That becomes established by adolescence, and at that point, and I want to reiterate, this is a proposal, right, based on these findings, that um, at that point, the brain might say, okay, this is how much dopamine you're going to have. Now go and optimize the number of, of, of D2, D3 receptors that you have, right? We want to be the most effective in being able to, you know, process that information in an optimal manner. And yeah. that is what we're, we, we're thinking that we see evidence for. Um, and we've, We've taken that even further in a paper that literally just came out this week in Progress in Neurobiology, where we looked at this tissue iron and we found that these developmental changes in tissue iron also um, support decreases in how the striatum, right, the part for reward, is talking to prefrontal executive systems. And it because that is decreasing with age, which we propose is reflecting the attenuation of the influence of reward on executive function. And this is mediated by this indirect measure of dopamine availability. Mm. Yeah, this is so fascinating, uh, Bia. So, so let me see if I understand this. So uh, dopamine obviously is a mediator uh, in, in many different functions. And uh, if I understand this correctly, as you age, 
um, sort of the communications between sort of the executive functions uh, in the brain and sensation-seeking aspects of the brain, uh, those get uh, dampened in some ways? Yes. So, you know, okay. we've seen the that evidence for this in many different ways. So we, yep. we see, for example, when you present a reward stimuli, that the reactivity in the striatum decreases with age. We've looked at functional connectivity between the ventral tegmental area, which is a part of the brain that produces dopamine, and the striatum also decreases during a rewarded state. It also decreases from, you know, developmentally into adulthood. And now we have this finding of decreases in D2, D3 receptor densities also from adolescence to adulthood. So, and, and also we had, we looked at white matter connectivity in the basal ganglia in convergence zones where limbic regions and executive regions exchange information. And we found that there was a, a shift from adolescence where there were more white matter um, connections that were predominating over the cognitive ones. And that flipped so that by adulthood, more cognitive uh, connections were predominating over the effective ones. And then when we looked at what was underlying that, we found that in fact, the integrity of the white matter connections from cognitive regions were stable, just like our driven dual systems model would have predicted. But the ones coming from effective regions were decreasing their integrity. So again, attenuation of these um, effective systems. Yeah, so it is true that if you don't use it, you will lose it. Yeah, and you know, what I always say is that yeah. the brain is not trying to be good or bad. It's what yeah. you're feeding it. If you're feeding that it's amygdala, which is a part of the brain that has a lot to do with fear and emotion and so forth, if the amygdala is predominating over prefrontal cortex yeah. throughout development, in particular in adolescence, the brain is going to say, oh, we see that this is who you are. Let's really cement this and make it predominant. And boom, here you are someone who has a risk for mood disorders and possibly psychosis, which is things that we have found as well. Yeah, and uh, you know, Facebook users and the democracy in more general has some implications. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I always see all these things as being more evolutionary. I always get asked that, oh, what, what, what's going on with all this iPhone use? Or I remember a long time ago, what's up with that hip hop music, you know? And it's yeah. just, you know, we adapt, we're plastic, we're humans. Yeah, so, so, so I want to ask you in conclusion, I know that you are doing a lot of work in this area. Um, this could go in a lot of different directions. It has implications for the criminal justice system as one of the one of your papers uh, detailed. Uh, it, it even has implications for uh, sort of policies uh, for for countries. Uh, so where do you think this will go um, as you look forward five, ten years? Where, where do you think you'll focus on in terms of further fleshing this out? Well, well one long-term goal that we have is, you know, this decades of um, understanding the neural basis of the development of cognitive control. Yeah. We would like to, and, and we're working on it, design a pediatric growth chart. You know, wh when you bring your child and 
they're like, oh, you know, their height is 70, 70th percentile in, in the pediatric growth chart. We would, let, we would like to have a cognitive pediatric growth chart. Oh. That yeah. Because we know about the brain mechanisms and we know the cognition is, you know, so fragile when it comes to mental illness, to be able to track the individual. And if we see that they're starting to fall out of this pediatric growth chart, to come up with interventions that are just very much targeted to cognitive control, to bring mm -hmm. them back up so that we can ameliorate the risk um, for having a poor trajectory to better equip them. We, we, we don't have illusions that we're going to, you know, you know, stop the coming of a neurobiological predisposition, but yeah. that we could better enforce, because again, in a use it or lose it fashion, and better prepare the individual going forward. Yeah. Uh, so very, very quickly, do you, do you think... Um... Well, I don't know if I asked this question before. Do you think there is some sort of a therapeutic intervention that might be possible in the future? Uh, yes, um, because, uh, again, use it or lose it. So one way of thinking about it is if you're engaged in a certain activity, which is repeated and done you know, more often, then the brain is going to be exercising that, let's say in quotes, muscle, and it'll become more predominant. Yeah. And you can see that, you know, you know, in, in, in situations where you have trauma, or you, where you have a lot of stress, it really does affect the neurobiological trajectory that happens. So, yes, what those interventions are, I think a lot of people are working on it and yeah. is, is to be set. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Bia. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Okay. No, it was great talking to you, Gil. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.